seeing as we have covered some of the bigger topics in rehab medicine already, I figured why not do another big topic, and we're going to go over spinal cord injuries now. The incidence in the United States is about 40 new injuries per million of the population per year, which equals about 12,000 new spinal cord injury cases a year, approximately 273,000 cases um, in the whole United States at this point. Um, Gender approximately 4 to 1, males to females. The average age injury is 42.6 years of age. Trends tend to show a slight increase in females affected and a slight increase in the average age as well. SCIs occur most frequently among persons in the 16 to 30-year age group. Children 15 years of age or younger account for only about 4.5% of spinal cord injury cases. And persons older than 60 years of age account for greater than 11% of SCI cases. Etiology is most commonly caused by motor vehicle crashes, about 36.5%, followed by falls, 28.5%. 14% violence, mostly gunshot wounds. 9% sports, most common is diving. This has gone down recently. And trends also include a decrease in SCI due to violence and an increase in fall-related SCI. Falls are the most common cause of SCI in the elderly, with MVC being the uh, second most common cause in the elderly. Most common time of injury is in the summer season, the highest incidence in July, weekends, for whatever reason, Saturday greater than Sunday, and nighttime. The type of injury over the last 20 years, cases of incomplete tetraplegia have increased, while complete paraplegia and complete tetraplegia have decreased. C5 is overall the most common level of injury, and T12 is the most common level of injury of paraplegia. About 40.6% overall have incomplete ter- uh, teratoplegia, 187 have incomplete paraplegia, 18% have complete teratoplegia, ter- tetraplegia, and 116 complete paraplegia. Uh, with regards to social and vocational demographics, traumatic SCI patients are more likely to be single, about 51.6%, which are either never married, separated, or divorced. The likelihood of marriage remaining intact is lower when compared to uninjured population, both before and after injury. The likelihood of marriage after SCI is reduced, and post-injury marriage survives better than pre-injury marriages. So if you get married after you're injured, you're going to stick together as opposed to if you get injured. Excuse me, uh, that's wrong. If you get married after you get injured, you're going, to be, you're going to stick together. But if you get injured, if you're married before you get injured, then you're more likely to get divorced. Return to work post-injury at about one year is about 11.8% are employed. At 20 years post-injury, 35% are employed. The higher the level and more severe the injury, the less likely to return to employment. Other predictors of returning to work include younger age, male Caucasian, married, greater education, and ability to drive. The life expectancy and mortality rates are higher during the first year after injury than during subsequent years. Overall, life expectancy has improved from 50 years ago but remains uh, below normal overall. Mortality in the first years post-injury has greatly improved, less so for subsequent years post-injury in the last decades. Predictions of mortality after injury include male gender, advanced age, ventilator dependence, injured by an act of violence, high injury level, particularly C4 or above, neurological complete injury, poor community integration, poor economic status indicators, and having either Medicare or Medicaid third-party sponsorships of care. The distinction between injury grades, neurologically complete versus incomplete, is more important for those with the highest levels of injury, but not for those with lower injuries. Causes of death, uh, respiratory disorders are the leading cause of death following chronic SCI, with pneumonia being the most common cause. Heart disease ranks second, followed by septicemia, usually associated with pressure ulcers, urinary tract infections, or respiratory infections, and cancer. Genitourinary disease, particularly renal failure, 
were the leading cause of death 30 to 40 years ago, but this has declined dramatically, most likely to advances in neurological management. The suicide rate is highest and the second leading cause of death in SEI patients who are younger than 25. Suicide is more common in persons with paraplegia than tetraplegia. I would imagine that last statement is true because of their ability to use their hands. I can't say for sure on that one. Anatomy of the spine. Uh, though this is simple, these are things to review. The spinal column consists of 33 overall vertebrae, 7 cervical vertebrae, 12 thoracic vertebrae, 5 lumbar vertebrae, 5 fused sacral vertebrae, and 4 fused coccygeal vertebrae. Uh, spinal cord anatomy, it's located in the upper two-thirds of the vertebral column. The terminal portion of the cord is the conus medullaris, which becomes the cauda equina, or the horse's tail, at around the L1 to L2 vertebral levels. The spinal cord has white matter surrounded by an inner core of gray matter. The white matter consists of nerve fibers, neuroglia, and blood vessels. The nerve fibers form spinal tracts, which are divided into ascending, descending, and intersegmental tracts. The location and function of various tracts um, are shown in the figure 7-2 on, uh, on page 554 in this Cucurillo version. In particular, uh, you can see, well, you can look into this by, um, at your own. It talks about lots of the tracts as well. Essentially, um, in the posterior columns, you have more uh, response for the vesicularis gracilis and vesicularis cuneatus that, that control light, tension, light touch and vibration. The spinocellular bellow tracts um, have muscular position and tone, unconscious proprioception. The lateral spinal thalamic tracts uh, uh, control pain and thermal sensation. The ventral spinal thalamic tracts control tactile sensation of crude touch and pressure. Lateral corticospinal tracts are the pyramidal tracts have a theorized to have motor fibers running uh, medial cervical to lateral sacral. And the anterior corticospinal tract is motor with neck and trunk movements. Some major sending pathways in the spinal cord injury can also be seen um, in figure 7-3 on page 555 that shows where the, where the tracks cross in relation to the brainstem. But let's go through some of these in details here. So in the descending pathways, you have the lateral corticospinal tracts which are the main tracts for controlling voluntary muscle activity. Its origin is the precentral gyrus of the frontal lobe of the brain. Axons descend through the internal capsule to the medulla oblongata. 80 to 90% of the axons cross over or decussate to the contralateral side at the pyramidal desiccation in the, med in the medulla. Nerve fibers then descend in the lateral white columns of the spinal cord or the lateral corticospinal tracts. At each level, the spinal cord of the spinal cord, the axons from the lateral tract peel off and enter the gray area or the gray matter of the ventral horn to synapse with secondary neurons. The remaining 10 to 20% of axons do not decussate or travel, uh, or travel in, the, in the interior or ventral corticospinal tracts. The axons of the ventral tract then cross over the corresponding level of muscles that they innervate. Both tracts travel from the precentral gyrus to the ventral horn as uninterrupted neurons. They are termed upper motor neurons, while the secondary neurons that they synapse on are termed lower motor neurons. Cerebral lesions result in contralateral deficits in general. The ascending pathways are the spinocellular tracts, which transmit unconscious proprioception or muscle proprioceptive strength or stretch and tension fibers from the ipsilateral side of the body. Because these tracts remain ipsilateral, cerebellar lesions produce ipsilateral malfunctioning. 
and you also have the lateral spinal thalamic tracts that transmit pain and temperature from the contralateral side of the body. Pain and temperature sensory fibers enter the spinal cord and synapse in the dorsal horn of the gray matter. The fibers cross over to the opposite side, the opposite half of the cord within one to three vertebral segments, ascend in the lateral spinal thalamic tracts to the thalamus on the opposite side, and then ascend in the internal capsule to the postcentral gyrus of the cerebral cortex. A lesion of the lateral spinal thalamic tract will result in loss of pain and temperature sensation contralaterally below the level of the lesion. The dorsal or posterior columns transmit proprioception, fine touch, and vibration sense from the ipsilateral side of the body. These sensory fibers synapse at the dorsal root ganglion and immediately ascend into the ipsilateral dorsal right columns. They travel up to the medulla, at which point they decussate. Axons that enter the cord at the sacral and lumbar levels are situated in the medial part of the dorsal column, i.e. the lower part of the body, called the fasciculus gracilis. These axon, those axons that enter at the thoracic and cervical levels are situated in the lateral part of the column from the upper part of the body and are termed the fasciculus cuneatus. Axons of each fasciculus synapse in the medulla and form a bundle termed the medial limniscus, which ascends to the postcentral gyrus. A lesion of the posterior columns results in the loss of proprioception and vibration ipsilaterally below the level of the lesion. So that's a lot of dry information that we just went over. These pathways, these tracks are not my favorite thing to go over. Things to remember, lateral corticospinal tracks tend to be um, motor units. If they descend, it's motor. If they ascend, it's sensory is one thing to remember. Um, and then just determining where light touch, temperature, pressure, pain, vibration, things like that occur is also the main takeaway from this. The blood supply of the spinal cord is also something that they love to test on, especially as we, well, we'll go through this and I'll point out some of the the ones that I've seen pretty frequently. The spinal cord receives blood supply from one anterior and two posterior spinal arteries, as well as anterior and posterior radicular arteries. The anterior spinal artery arises uh, as a single artery that runs within the anterior median fissure and supplies blood supply, blood flow to the anterior two-thirds of the spinal cord. Posterior spinal arteries arise directly or indirectly from the vertebral arteries, run inferiorly along the sides of the spinal cord, and provide blood to the posterior third of the, of the spinal cord. Radicular arteries are branches of local arteries, or vertebrals, the vertebral, cervical, intercostal, lumbar, and sacral arteries that enter the vertebral canal through the intervertebral foramina and reinforce the anterior and posterior spinal arteries. So big things there, anteriorly is the anterior two-thirds, there's one artery that supplies the anterior spinal artery, and then there's two posterior spinal arteries that supply the posterior two-thirds, typically around the dorsal columns. The artery of Ademkovitz provides the major blood supply to the lumbar and sacral cord. This is one that I've seen tested multiple times. They love that one for whatever reason in the lower lumbar region. Um, it's not the anterior spinal artery. It's the artery of Ademkovitz. It generally arises from the left intercostal or lumbar artery at the level of T9 to L3 and provides the major blood supply to the lower two-thirds of the spinal cord. The lower thoracic region is referred to as the watershed area because there are few radicular arteries that supply the mid-thoracic region of the spinal cord. This area, T4 to 6, is most affected when there is low blood flow to the spinal cord, i.e. clamping of the aorta and surgery. The veins of spinal cord anatomy um, of the spinal cord drain mainly into the internal venous plexus. All right, so that's a lot of anatomy. It's fairly, uh, fairly dry and fairly bland, but there's a few takeaway points there. Moving on to spinal pathology. 
Uh, cervical spine uh, flexion and hyperextension injuries are common. Flexion injuries occur with uh, compression fractures. The mechanism is uh, cervical flexion with axial loading. C5 is the most common compression fracture of the C-spine. Force ruptures the plates of the vertebra uh, and compresses the body. Anterior wedge-shaped appearing vert vertebrae are typically seen on the x-ray. Fragments may project into the spinal canal, which may result in injury to the nerve root and or the cord itself with retropulsion of bony fragments. You can also have unilateral facet joint dislocations. The mechanism occurs with cervical flexion and rotational injuries. The vertebral body is, great, is less than 50% displaced on x-ray. It's unstable if the posterior longitudinal ligament is disrupted. Narrowing of the spinal canal and neural foramina can, foramen can also be seen. C5 to 6 is the most common level. Also note that flexion and rotation injuries may disrupt the intervertebral disc, facet joints, and intraspinous ligaments with little or no fracture to the vertebrae. If spinal cord injury results, it is more likely to be an incomplete injury. You can also have bilateral facet joint dislocations with a flexion injury. The vertebral body is greater than 50% displaced on x-ray. Uh, so when we're saying displaced, we're talking about spondylolisthesis, where one vert vertebrae is uh, shifted forward on another or um, causing significant narrowing of the spinal canal. There's un it's unstable with disruption of the posterior longitudinal ligament, the PLL. The most common level is C5 to 6 because of increased movement in this area, and the injury is more likely to be neurologically complete in this sense. Moving on to hyperextension injuries, these can be caused by acceleration and deceleration injuries such as a motor vehicle collision. C4 to 5 is the most commonly affected level. Typically it's a soft, injury, soft tissue injury that may not be seen on radiological studies, but hyperextension injury of the C-spine in the elderly may result in a central cord syndrome, which we will discuss a little bit later. Non-traumatic SCI um, etiologies include spinal stenosis with myelopathy, spinal cord compression from neoplasm, multiple sclerosis, transverse myelitis, infections such as viral, bacterial, fungal, or parasitic abscesses, vascular ischemia, radiation myopathy, excuse me, radiation myelopathy, motor neuron disease, syringomyelia, vitamin B12 deficiency, and others. Spinal stenosis with myelopathy and spinal cord tumors are the most common causes of non-traumatic SCI uh, presenting for inpatient rehab in the United States. Transverse myelitis is an idiopathic inflammatory disorder of the spinal cord with a 4 to 1 female to male ratio that peaks in the second and fourth decades. Although some patients show good recovery, most remain with uh, residual impairments. A small percentage may have a recurrence. Poor recovery is predicted by rapid progression, back pain, and spinal shock. Epidural abscess is most commonly seen in diabetic and immunocompromised patients. I've also seen epidural abscess in... Um, IV drug use. Radiation myelopathy is delayed compl complication of radiation to lesions of the spine or adjacent tissues that develops months or years after treatment. Incidence is correlated with the total radiation dose, the dose fraction, and the length of the spinal cord irradiation. Clinically, there's weakness, loss of sensation, and sometimes a brown saquard like syndrome that develops. Prognosis for significant recovery is poor. Spinal cord tumors can be primary or metastatic, intradural or extradural. The majority of spinal cord tumors are metastatic in origin, and 95% of these are extradural, so metastatic and extradural. Approximately 70% of spinal metastasis occur in the thoracic spine with a clinical presentation of pain, typically worse at night, and then the patient is 
and, and when the patient is in a supine position. The most common sources of secondary tumors are the lung, breast, and prostate. The most common primary tumors are ependymomas and astrocytomas. Non-traumatic SCI in persons over the age 50 usually have a less severe neurological impairment as compared to traumatic spinal cord injury as they are more often present, uh, they, as they more often present with motor incomplete lesions about 90% of the time. There is a lower incidence of secondary medical complications including spasticity, orthostasis, DVT, pressure ulcers, autonomic dysreflexia, and wound infection uh, during rehab pa in patients with non-traumatic SCI. Inpatient rehab length of stays are shorter for persons with non-traumatic injury secondary to tumors, but, functionally, but functional independence measure um, or FIM score efficiency and home discharge rates are overall comparable to traumatic SCI. There is a favorable discharge to home for patients who have an incomplete injury, are married, have an established bowel and bladder management program, have intact skin, are male gender, and are cognitively intact. Talking about cervical bracing briefly here, um, we'll, we'll go over more in detail when we talk about prosthetics and orthotics, but when we talk about removable cervical orthotics, from least restrictive to most restrictive, the least restrictive is the soft collar followed by the Philadelphia collar, then a SOMI brace, a four-poster, and a Minerva. You also have non-removable cervical orthoses, and the halo is the most restrictive cervical orthosis in, of all of the cervical orthoses. Typically, as you increase in restrictiveness, um, you decrease in function as well. The soft collar is the least restrictive of all the collars. The head cervical orthoses are often used post-surgery in SCI and include the Philadelphia, Miami J, Aspen, Malibu, and Jobst vertebrace, to name a few. The Minerva brace is the most restrictive removable brace, followed by the four-poster, uh, the sternooccipital mandibular immobilizer, or, or SOMI. The halo brace, again, is the most restrictive and is not removable. And again, we, we'll go over this in prosthetics and orthotics. Neurological injury relative to radiographic findings and complete lesions are more often seen with bilateral uh, facet dislocations, thoracolumbar flexion rotation injuries, and transcranial gunshot wounds. Incomplete injuries are more often seen with cervical spondylosis with falls, unilateral facet dislocations, and non-canal penetrating gunshots or stab wounds. I'm not sure if it's going to go over here, but I have been asked multiple times about poor prognostic indicators in um, MRI from my attendings. And the three that we typically see are multi-level um, edema, cord hemorrhage, or transection. Those are the big three, multi-level edema, cord hemorrhage, and transection, poor prognostic indicators. Fractures of the spine. This is one that, that um, can be tested on. It's not as tested as often, but it's, it's good to know. Uh, for cervical fractures, you can have a Jefferson fracture, which is a C1 burst fracture, where you get a burst fracture of the C1 ring, usually a stable fracture with no neurological uh, findings. The mechanism is axial loading that causes fractures of anterior and posterior parts of the atlas, like football spearing. And the treatment is a rigid orthosis, such as a halo vest. If it is a stable fracture, unstable fractures will require surgery. Hangman fracture, or C2 burst fracture, is usually bilateral, from an abrupt deceleration injury, such as a motor vehicle collision with the head hitting the windshield. It's more often stable with only transient neurological findings, and the treatment is external orthosis. The halo is first-line uh, first treatment. Unstable fracture will require surgery. An odontoid or dense fracture. Now, these are ones that are important as well. There's three types that are covered here. Type 1 is a fracture for the, through the tip of the dens, and typically no treatment is required. 
Type 2 is most common as a fracture through the base of the odont odontoid at the junction of the C2 vertebrae. Um, usually treated with a halo vest, but surgery may be required if unstable. And type 3 fracture extends from the base of the odontoid into the body of the C2 vertebrae, uh, uh, which usually is treated with a halo vest. Uh, vertebral compression fractures can also be seen. Thoracolumbar fractures, a chance fracture is a transverse fracture of the thoracic or lumbar spine from posterior to anterior through the spinous process, pedicles, and vertebral body. It usually affects uh, T12, L1, and L2. It previously was the most commonly seen in patients wearing lap seat belts, now typically due to falls or crush injuries with acute hyperflexion of the thorax. They tend to be stable fractures and are seldom associated with neurological uh, compromise unless a significant amount of translation occurs. A vertebral body compression fracture or anterior wedging is most commonly caused by axial compression with or without flexion. Ver uh, vertebrae height, body height is reduced and may cause thoracic kyphosis or a Dowager hop. Spontaneous vertebral compression fractures are stable injuries and as long as the ligaments remain intact. There's also a spinal, something called a spinal cord injury without radiological abnormality, or skiwara. It's commonly seen in young children or older adults. Uh, mechanisms of injury include traction in a breech delivery or violent hyperextension or flexion. Predisposing factors include large head-to-neck ratio, elasticity of the fibrocartilaginous spine, and horizontal orientation of the planes of the cervical facet joints. In older adults, the typical mechanism of injury includes a fall with hyperextension of the neck, leading to an acute central cord syndrome, or ligamentum flavum may, be, uh, may bulge forward into the central canal and narrow the sagittal diameter as much as 50%. Please note that delayed onset or paralysis may occur due to a vascular mechanism or edema accumulation at the site of injury, although this is uncommon. Um, there's also flexion extension films should be performed cautiously only after static neck films have been cleared by a radiologist and only if there is no neurological symptoms or severe pain present. Empiric use of a 24-hour cervical column with collar with repeat films at resolution of cervical spasm is warranted. Okay, moving on to some of the classifications here. Um, this is a big part of spinal cord injury and what we do as well is the diagnosis of the severity of the disease and the different types of classifications going on. So some terminology. Uh, tetraplegia. It was formerly called quadriplegia, more appropriately now called tetraplegia, is the impairment or loss of motor and, and or sensory function in the cervical segments of the spinal cord due to damage of neural elements within the spinal cord results in impairment of the function in arms, trunk, legs, and pelvic organs. It does not refer to peripheral nerve or brachial plexus injuries, so it's only an upper motor neuron issue. In par paraplegia, is the impairment or loss of motor and or sensory function in the thoracic, lumbar, or sacral, but not the cervical segments of the spinal cord. It can affect the trunk, legs, and pelvic organs, but arm function is spared. It also refers to cauda equina and conus medullaris injuries, but not to the lower motor neuron injuries outside the neural canal, such as a lumbosacral plexus injury or a peripheral nerve injury. Cauda equina uh, tends to be more of a low, lower motor neuron issue. Conus medullaris, depending on where it, can, where it is, can, be, can involve some upper motor neuron as well. 
Dermatome is the area of skin innervated by the sensory axon within each spinal nerve or root. And a myotome is a collection of muscle fibers innervated by motor axons within each segmental nerve root. So brief discussion here on upper motor neuron versus lower motor neuron injury. In an upper motor neuron injury, the innervation begins in the prefrontal cortex, uh, motor cortex, and travels through the internal capsule and brainstem and projects into the spinal cord. In lower, lower motor neuron, the innervation begins with the anterior spinal and uh, excuse me, the anterior horn cells of the spinal cord and includes the peripheral nerves. In an upper motor neuron injury, you may find hyperreflexia, pathologic reflexes such as Babinski or Hoffman, and intrusor sphincter dysenergy, depending on the level of lesion. Lower motor neuron findings include hyporeflexia, flaccid weakness, significant muscle atrophy, and areflexic or hypotonic bladder. Asia, the Asia International Standards of Neurological Classification of SCI is something to be, of, uh, be aware of. Neurological examination and definitions. Documenting impairments in a person with an SCI is best determined by performing a standardized neurological examination as endorsed by the International Standards for Neurological Classification of Spinal Cord Injury Patients. The examination is composed of sensory and motor components and is performed with the patient in the supine, supine position to be able to compare initial and follow-up exams. The information from this examination is recorded on a standardized flow sheet and helps determine the sensory, motor, and neurological level of injury. Sensory and motor index scores and ways to classify the impairment. If you are not familiar with what an ASIA score is or what an ASIA sheet looks like, I would encourage you to Google it. Just Google ASIA spinal cord injury and look for the PDF that has what, what it is that we walk through here. Sensory testing, uh, there are 28 key sensory dermatomes that are individually tested for light touch and pinprick modalities. The face is used as the normal control point. The face should be normal as those are innervated by the cranial nerves. And a three-point scale is used to score light touch, pinprick sensation separately. A score of zero would be absent. A score of one would be impaired, whether it be hypo or hypersensitive. And, number, and a two would be normal. Again, these are compared to the face. So you would touch the face and then you would touch the sensory point and ask if they can feel it and what it feels like. For pinprick testing, using the, uh, the sharp edge of a, sa of a safety pin, sensation is compared to, the, to that on the face. The patient must be able to differentiate the sharp and the dull edge of the safety pin. So a zero would be no sensation at all, or if the sharp and the dull feel the same. A one would be the pin is not felt as sharp on the face, but able to feel that it is sharp compared to dull, and two is the pin is felt as sharp on the face as it is on the body. So again, with light touch, it's absent sensation. Impaired can either be less or more than on the face, and a two is normal. So a zero to two scale for those. Um, it's very important to test the S4-5 dermatome for light touch and pinprick sensation as well, as it is a crucial part of what is used to distinguish between a neurological complete and incomplete injury. And the sensory level of injury is the most caudal segment of the spinal cord with normal sensory, a two out of two score for, uh, for both, on both sides of the body for both pinprick and light touch. So both sides have to be a two. Um, a couple of them, there's a list on page 565 and you can also pull it up online of where the uh, key motor points are. Some to remember, uh, C2 is the occipital protuberance, C3 is the supracurricular fossa. Um, C5 is the lateral side of the antecubital fossa. 
Uh, C6 is the, dorsal, is the base of the proximal phalanx. C7 is the base of the middle phalanx. And C8 is the base of the uh, little finger phalanx. And T1 is the medial side of the elbow. T4 is the nipple line. T10 is about the level of the umbilicus. L1 is half the distance between, well, L2, let's go L2 is mid-anterior thigh. L3 is medial femoral condyle. L4 is medial malleolus. L5 is the dorsum of the foot at the third MTP. S1 is the lateral heel. S2 is the popliteal fossa. And S3 is the ischial tuberosity. And S4 to 5 is the perianal area. It's taken as one level. For motor strength testing, there are t 10 key myotomes, both on the left and on the right sides of the body that are tested in the supine position. Uh, C5 is elbow flexion. C6 is wrist extension. C7 is elbow extension. C8 is finger flexors, particularly the FDP of the middle finger. T1 is the abductor digiti minimi, or finger abduction. L2 is the iliopsoas, or hip flexors. L3 is knee extensors. L4 is ankle dorsiflexors, particularly the tibialis anterior. L5 is long toe extension, and S1 is plantar flexion. And these are graded on a scale from 0 to 5. Um, this is a very important one to remember. Uh, so essentially, 0 is no movement, and 5 is normal, based on, uh, normal strength based on age, sex, and body habitus. Um, a 4 is that they're able to move through full range of motion against some degree of resistance. So that could be any degree of resistance. It's a, it's a pretty broad range there to be, a, to be a four. A three is active range of motion through full range of motion against gravity, but if any resistance is applied, they cannot uh, overcome it. Any degree, even the smallest degree of resistance. A two is active range of motion or active movement through full range of motion when gravity is eliminated. And a one is only palpable or visible contraction, but no movement. Sometimes some of these areas are not testable due to immobilization, severe pain, uh, such that the patient cannot be graded, or amputation of limb or contracture of greater than 50% uh, range of motion. The motor level of injury is the most caudal key muscle group that is graded uh, at three or, uh, three or greater, with all the segments above it being a five out of five in strength. The motor level can be determined for each side of the body. So for a motor index scoring, a possible score of 100 can be obtained when adding the muscle scores of the key muscle groups, uh, 25 points for extremity. It is recommended that the motor score should be separated into two scores, one composed of the 10 upper limb muscle function and one of the 10 lower, lower limb muscle functions with a maximum score of 50 each. Um, so the reason why you can have a 3 out of 5 as long as everything above that is a 5 and still be considered normal is that there's crossover from these as well. There's, uh, each of those m muscles gets some contribution from a segment uh, just above or below it as well. So the neurological level of injury is the most caudal segment of the spinal cord with normal sensory and motor function greater than 3 out of 5 with cephalid segments graded 5 out of 5 on both sides of the body. So it's whichever one is the highest with both normal and normal sensory and motor. Since the level may be different from side to side, it is recommended to record each side separately. Um, the motor and sensory levels are the same in less than 50% of complete injuries. In cases where there is no key muscle level available, uh, such as cervical levels above C4 or from T12 to L1, excuse me, T2 to L1, and sacral levels below S2, the neurological level of injury is that which corresponds with the sensory level if testable motor function above the level is normal. 
So if a person has a normal upper extremity strength and their sensation is normal up until that T10 level and then their motor is impaired and the key motor level is below that, um, that level at T10 where it's normal would be the neurological level of injury. You can also have a skeletal level of injury, which is the level where the greatest skeletal damage is noted by radiographic evaluation. Then there's neurologically complete versus incomplete injuries. SCI can be classified as neurologically complete or incomplete and indicates if there is structural continuity of the white matter along the tracks or not. Classification is dependent on the presence or absence of sacral sparing. Sacral sparing is evaluated by testing either voluntary anal sphincter contraction or sensory function. This sensory function is either light touch or pinprick at the S4 to S5 dermatome or deep anal pressure on rectal examination. It can be carried can be impaired or intact on either side. The presence of sacral sparing represents at least partial structural continuity of the white matter along tracks. There is better prognosis for motor and sensory return below the level of injury, as well as the possibility of return for bowel and bladder function relative to persons with a neurologically complete injury. Um, so that's probably, this is the most key part of the exam, is that distal sacral segment. So if it's a complete injury, there is no sacral sparing. Absence of sensory and motor function, the lower sacral segment, uh, which is the S4 to 5 um, dermatome. So this essentially means that if you do light touch and pinprick at the S4 5 region, they can't feel it at all. And then you know, on a rectal exam, they cannot feel any deep pressure. Additionally, there's no motor function. So there is no, when you ask them to contract, there is no voluntary anal contraction. There's a term called the zone of partial preservation, which is only used with neurologically complete lesions and refers to the dermatomes and myotomes caudal or distal to the neurological level of injury that remain partially innervated. In incomplete spinal cord injury, there is presence of sacral sparing that indicates at least partial preservation of sensory and or motor function below the neurological level that includes the lowest sacral segments. Sacral sensation and motor function are assessed. So, Again, sacral sparing and incomplete um, SCI represents at least partial structure continuity of the white matter along the, along the tracks, such as the corticospinal and spinothalamic tracks. There's better prognosis for motor and sensory return below the level of injury, as well as the possibility of return of bowel and bladder function relative to persons with a neurological complete injury. So the Asia Impairment Scale, or the AIS, uh, goes from A to E. A is a complete injury where there's no motor or sensory preservation at the S4 to S5 segments, and E is normal. So it's essentially they have diagnosed a spinal cord injury in the past but have recovered completely and have no deficits in motor or sensory in those testing. Uh, B, C, and D is where it gets a little bit more complicated. So B is sensory but not motor function is preserved below the neurological level of injury and includes the intact S4 to S5 segments. So um, light touch or pinprick at S4 or 5 or deep anal sensation is impaired or, or uh, may be present at, in, a, in a B. So there's some degree of sensation at the distal, motor, uh, distal sacral segments, but there is no motor function preserved more than three levels below the motor level of injury. So that's different than the, the neurological level of injury. It's the motor level of injury. You go three segments below that, and if anything is spared below that, um, if, anything, if, if there's no presence of any motor contraction below that, that's an Asia B. Asia C is motor function is preserved below the neurological level of injury. Now, this is where it gets hard. So, um, <clears throat> and then a D is motor function is also preserved below the neurological level of injury. 
but in a C, more than half of the key muscles below the neurological level of injury are graded at less than three. But in a, a D, at least half, so 50% or more, are graded at a level three or above. And the way to determine that, again, is the, is the motor level of injury. You, take, you find the motor level of injury, which is where everything is either a five or at least a three, as long as everything above it is a five, and you go three levels below that. And if there is any motor sparing below that, including involuntary anal contraction, that would be a motor incomplete, which would, which would automatically put it into a C or a D. The AIS classif uh, classifies the injury and distinguishes between a neurological complete and incomplete injury. In classifying an AIS level, uh, determine, you need to determine the sensory levels for right and left side. Starting from the top of the flow sheet, you go down until you see a zero or a one, and going up one level gives you the sensory level. And determining the motor level of injury is the most caudal key muscle group that is graded at at least three out of five, as long as all these segments above it are five out of five. And in regions where there is no myotome to test, the motor level is presumed to be the same as the sensory level. And to determine the single neurological level on each side, it's the most cephalod in, um, intact sensory and motor levels determined in steps one and two. And you need to determine whether the injury is uh, complete or incomplete with sacral sparing. And then you need to determine the AIS grade. Is it a complete injury? If it is, then it's A, and you can record a zonal partial preservation. If it's incomplete, is it motor incomplete? If it is not motor incomplete, as in there is no motor activity three levels below the motor level of injury, then it's a B. And if there is, if it is motor incomplete, again, is it three levels, uh, is there any motor spared three levels below the motor level of injury? Then you need to determine if it's a C or a D. And are there greater than 50% of the muscles that are below a level of three? Then it's a C. And if it's 50% or more are three or greater, then it's a D. If sensation and motor function is normal in all segments, then it's an Asia E. Asia E is used in follow-up testing when an individual with a documented SCI has recovered. If no deficits are found in initial testing, the individual is considered to be neurologically intact and the Asia score does not apply. In 2012, levels were added for non-key muscles in cases that were examined to help distinguish between Asia B and C. Um, so it doesn't necessarily need to be just a key muscle, it's any, any muscle. So for C5, you've got some shoulder flexion, extension, abduction, adduction, and internal external rotation, as well as elbow supination. C6, you have elbow pronation and wrist flexion. At C7, you have finger, uh, finger flexion at the proximal joint and extension, and thumb flexion, extension, and abduction of the plane of, uh, and plane of thumb. C8 would be flexion of the MCP joint, or opposition and ab abduction and abduction of the thumb. T1 would be abduction of the little finger. The hip uh, for L2 could have hip adduction. L3 would be external rotation of the hip. L4 could be extension, abduction, or internal rotation of the hip, knee flexion, ankle inversion or in eversion, toe, um, MP, and IP extension. L5 would be uh, DIP and PIP flexion and abduction. And S1 would be big toe adduction. So just any of those, they're, they're not in the key muscle testing, but if you see anything spared there, that can put you towards a motor incomplete um, or a motor complete. Clinical presentation of spinal shock. So there's multiple stages of spinal shock. Spinal shock is a temporary loss or depression of all spinal reflex activity below the level of the lesion, although this may not occur in all patients. There's a loss of motor function and sensation accompanied by 
atonic paralysis of the bladder and bowel. Muscles below the level of the lesion become flaccid and hyperreflexive. Autonomic function below the level of, of the lesion is also impaired, and there's a temporary loss of piloerection, sweating, and vasomotor tone in the lower parts of the body. You have a delayed plantar response, so, which is elicited by stroking the sole of the foot in the same area as used for the Babinski sign, but requires deep pressure rather than a light stimulus. The response is delayed in comparison to a normal plantar response or Babinski sign, and the toes flex and then relax slowly. If persistent, there is a high correlation with complete injuries and poor prognosis for lower extremity recovery. You also have the bulbal cavernosis reflex, which occurs after the delayed plantar re uh, response. The bulbar cavernosis reflex returns soon after injury, usually within 24 hours. So technically, you may be asked which, res which response occurs or which reflex returns first. Is it the delayed plantar response or the bulbar cavernosis reflex? Technically, I don't believe that the delayed plantar response is an actual reflex. So the bulbar cavernosis reflex may be the correct answer there, although the delayed plantar response occurs first. But the bulbar cavernosis reflex indicates that there is an upper motor neuron injury, and that reflex in, um, innervation of bowel and bladder is intact. And it's performed by uh, squeezing the tip of the penis in men or the clitoris in women or tugging on a Foley catheter and noting uh, stimulation of anal sphincter contraction. You may have to do a rectal exam with this to feel it if you can't see it. If not present by 24 hours, lower motor neuron injury may be suspected. There's also a perianal sphincter reflex or the anal wink where you have perineal or perianal stimulation that causes contraction of the anal sphincter and indicates similar findings to the bulbocavernosis reflex. For the duration of spinal shock, if it occurs, reflexes begin to return within about 24 hours. The initial reflex activity is noted, usually with the return of the delayed plantar response followed by the bulbocavernosis reflex in the anal wink. On average, muscle stretch reflexes return after two to three weeks, although some reflexes, um, such as the bladder, may not return for up to three months or later after injury. Muscle stretch reflexes become hyperactive with the presence of pathologic reflexes below the lesion, resulting in spasticity. Bowel and bladder of the Schuster reflexes may then return. Something that I didn't mention earlier was with regards to the determining the level of injury in the Asia exam is the timing of it. Typically, the best time to do it is between 72 hours and seven days from the time of injury. That's when you're going to get the best um, idea of where the initial Asia score is. So moving on to some of the incomplete spinal cord injury syndromes. Central cord syndrome is the most common of these incomplete spinal cord injury syndromes, approximately 9% total of all of spinal cord injury. It's most common of the, uh, produces sacral sensory sparing, greater motor weakness in the upper extremities than the lower limbs, and variable loss of sensation, bowel, and bladder function. And this, this greater upper than lower motor weakness uh, may be due to where the tracks are running along, the motor tracks are running along in the spinal cord with the cervical and thoracic regions running a little bit more centrally and the lumbo and sacral regions running a little bit more laterally. It's possibly due to, that's exactly what I just said, possibly due to the neuroanatomy of the corticospinal tracts having cervical distribution being medial and sacral distribution being more lateral. Early suggestion of the uh, central cord syndrome affected by the central aspects of the, of the spinal cord, thereby affecting the upper extremities more than the lower extremities. However, the proposed lamination as such in humans has not been proven and is now felt to be predominantly white matter injury. 
Despite being in the original description in 1954, intramedullary hemorrhage is uncommon. This may occur at any age, but more common in elderly patients with cervical spondylosis who sustain a hyperextension injury from a fall. As regards to recovery, lower extremities recover first and to a greater extent. This is followed by um, improvement in bladder function, then proximal upper extremity, and finally intrinsic hand function. Age below 50 is a key uh, positive prognostic indicator of functional recovery. Brown-Saquard syndrome constitutes about 2 to 4% of all of spinal cord injury. It's essentially a hemisection of the spinal cord from a lesion. This would usually be, uh, I think, historically we talked about knife, knife wounds, but uh, more commonly gunshot wounds now. It can also be caused from a uh, motor vehicle collision as well. You have neurological deficits distal to the level of, injury, of lesion vary on the different nerve tract crossings at different locations. So in this case, since half of the spinal cord is knocked out, you would have ipsilateral loss of all sensory modalities on the same side of the lesion, ipsilateral flaccid paralysis at the level of the lesion, ipsilateral loss of position sense and vibration, and contralateral loss of pain and temperature. So loss of motor and sensory on and proprioception on one side, on the ipsilateral side, and contralateral loss of pain and temperature. Overall, patients clinically present most often with a relative ipsilateral motor and proprioceptive loss and contralateral loss of pain and temperature. Anterior cord syndrome is a lesion that affects the anterior two-thirds of the spinal cord while preserving post, uh, the posterior columns. This can occur from flexion injuries, retropulsed disc or bone fragments, direct injury to the anterior spinal cord, and anterior spinal artery lesions. This results in variable loss of motor function with the cortico, uh, corticospinal tract and sensitivity to pain and temperature in the spinal thalamic tract, as well as pinprick sensation and preservation of proprioception and light touch and deep pressure sensation. The spinocellular tract may be involved. Uh, recovery has only about 10 to 20% chance of muscle recovery. You can also have the posterior cord syndrome, which is the least frequent syndrome and has been omitted from recent versions in the international standards. Injury to the posterior columns results in proprioceptive loss of the dorsal columns with muscle strength, pain, and temperature modalities spared. Prognosis for ambulation is poor, secondary to the proprioceptive deficits. So essentially, you just don't have positional and vibration sensation in place. The last two are conus medullaris and cauda equina syndrome. In conus medullaris, uh, it's the terminal segment of the, the adult spinal cord lies at the inferior aspect of the L1 to 2 vertebrae. An injury to the conus and lumbar nerve roots within the spinal cord usually results in areflexic bladder and bowel and, and lower limbs and low-level low lesions, that is, lesions at the very tip of the conus medullaris. If it is a higher lesion, uh, you may have uh, bulbocavernosis reflex and micturition reflex preserved. Um, in cotoquina syndrome, it's injuries below the L1 to 2 le vertebral levels, usually affecting the cotoquina or the nerve rootlets, which innervate the lumbar and sacral segments. This results in a lower motor neuron injury. It produces motor weakness and atrophy of the lower extremities with bowel and bladder involvement, impotence, sexual dysfunction, and areflexia of the ankle and plantar reflexes, that is, when they're distal. You'll have an absent bulbal cavernosis reflex. Uh, this has a better prognosis relative to upper motor neuron injuries for recovery, most likely due to the fact that the nerve roots are more resilient to injury as they are histologically peripheral nerves. Regeneration can occur. There's a table on page 573 that goes um, over the uh, 
commonalities and comparing and contrasting conus medullaris and cauda equina. Again, conus medullaris is T12 to L2 vertebral levels, and cauda equina is L1 to L2 or distally. The causes of conus medullaris include a T12 to L1 fracture, tumors, gliomas, vascular injury, spina bifida, and tethering of the cord. In cauda equina, you have fracture at L1 to 2 or below, sacral fractures, fracture of pelvic ring, and can be associated with spondylosis. Conus medullaris, some resultant signs and symptoms include normal motor function of lower extremities and less S1 to S2 motor involvement. Since it only involves S1 to S5, it's a lower motor neuron lesion with a lumbar root involvement. You can have saddle distribution of sensory loss, such as spared. Um, pain is not a significant factor. You may have symmetric abnormalities. Bowel and bladder and sexual dysfunction may occur. If a high conus lesion, bulbonic havernosis reflex may be present, and you may be hyperreflexive. For conus medullaris, you tend to have flaccid paralysis of the lower extremities of involved lumbosacral nerve roots, which results in a lower murder neuron lesion and areflexia in muscle groups affected. Sensory loss in root distribution, pain is more of a significant factor here. Um, abnormalities may predominate on one side. It may be asymmetric. High cotoquinal lesions. Uh, you can also have, you can also spare the bowel and bladder. And lower lesions, S3 to S5, causes areflexive bowel and bladder or sexual, and sexual dysfunction. <clears throat> Bulbocavernosis reflex is typically absent, and hyperreflexia or areflexia in the affected muscle groups. EMG and conus medullaris is normal, except for, some, except for the external anal sphincter or S1 or S2 involvement. And, um, and, and that's in conus medullaris. And in cotoquina findings show multiple nerve root, nerve root level um, involvement, and the prognosis tends to be pretty good. There's a chart on page 575 that talks about functional potential outcomes for patients with cervical spinal cord injuries, as well as potential for complete uh, paraplegics. I would recommend reviewing this on your own to try and figure that out. Um, essentially, uh, for upper extremity, C7 is the key muscle group for independence, and for the lower extremities, L2 is the key muscle group or key nerve group for, for motor independence in the lower extremities. So functional independence in a cervical complete SCI patient. The highest complete SCI level that can live independently without the aid of an attendant is a C6 tetraplegia. This patient would have to be extremely motivated. Feeding is accomplished with a universal cuff for utensils. Transfers require stabilization of elbow extension with forces transmitted from a shoulder musculature through a closed kinetic chain. Bowel care is performed using a suppository inserter or other apparatus for digital stimulation. And outcome studies of subset of patients with motor and complete and sensory complete C6 SCI revealed that for the majority of self-care tasks, including feeding, grooming, dressing, and transfers, less than 20% are independent. The following percentages of patients were independent for key self-care tasks. Feeding, 16%. Upper body dressing, 13%. Lower body dressing, 3%. Grooming, 19%. Bathing, 9%. Bowel care, 3%. Transfer 6%, and wheelchair propulsion, 88%. C7 is the usual level for achieving independence. So that's going to end our introduction to spinal cord injury. And we're going to next, in the next uh, segment, we'll talk about medical complications of spinal cord injury, but that'll be saved for another time.